0: you're listening to the Heart and Hustle podcast. We're your hosts, Evie Rupp and Lindsay Roman. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm just going to go out and say that this might be our best episode ever. I'm going to honestly confidently say that because if you dare skip this one or hop off this episode, your life will be worse for it. I'm not kidding. Like, and why am I saying that so boldly? Why do I so desperately want you to hear today's episode? Because we had the complete honor, the complete honor of chatting with the incredible Brian Byro, And let me just tell you what he had to say in this interview will change your life as a business owner, as a leader, as a parent, as a child, as a human being, honestly. Within the first 10 minutes of chatting with Brian, Evie and I were in tears, like sobs. Like I'm not even like sobs. <laughs> and then at the end, he made us cry again in the best way possible. Like just wow. Wow. Now, if you don't know who Brian Biro is, he is known as America's breakthrough coach. A major client of his once described him when they said, Brian Biro has the energy of a 10-year-old, the enthusiasm of a 20-year-old, and the wisdom of a 75-year-old. And after chatting with him on today's episode, we could not agree more with that statement. Brian is a coach, a speaker, an author who has delivered over 1,800 presentations around the world over the last 30 years, and as an author of 15 books, including his bestseller Beyond Success... That book is incredible, by the way. And his brand new one, The ROI of Kindness, Brian was rated number one from over 40 speakers at four consecutive Inc. Magazine international conferences. With degrees from Stanford University and UCLA, Brian has appeared on Good Morning America and CNN. Brian was named one of the top 100 most inspirational graduates in the 75-year history of the UCLA Graduate School of Business. He was also honored as one of the most top 10 interactive keynote speakers in North America and one of the top 60 motivational speakers in the entire world. And let me just say, Brian deserves every single one of those accolades and titles because he is truly just the real deal. So today on the show, Brian talks to us about some of the biggest lessons that you'll learn when it comes to being a leader. But before you mentally check out or hop on this episode thinking, oh, Lindsay Evie, I'm not a leader, stop right there. Literally stop right there. That is not true. And Brian is going to reveal why. In one of the most honestly impactful and and empowering and energizing episodes that we've ever done, Brian covers the power of the Pygmalion effect and how to harness that and change the lives of those around you and how to create a culture of kindness. And just how that can skyrocket your life and business, not to mention the lives of those around you, far beyond anything you thought possible. Now, if you're curious to know what sets apart some of the biggest and most loved companies from their competitors, and how you can use the same strategy and principles in your own life or business, keep listening. Also, bring tissues. You're just, you're welcome in advance for that warning. Let's go.
1: Then buckle up, because here are your hosts, Evie and Lindsay. Brian, welcome to the Heart and Hustle podcast. I can't even tell you what an honor it is to have you here today.
2: Oh, I am so excited. Your, Your energy and enthusiasm changes the world. So to be a part of this is so much fun.
1: Oh, I was literally (laughs) going to say the same thing about you. And you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but Lindsay and I are just major, major fans and feel like we've learned and grown so much from you and your books and all of it. So I feel like this is just going to be one heck of a powerful episode. And I'm so, so excited to have you. I can't wait. Let's rock. (laughs) Let's go. All right. So first up, let's start off by just for anyone who isn't familiar with you and knows anything about you, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what got you to where you are today?
2: Sure. I I think it all starts with uh, I love people. I believe in people. I believe that there are no overachievers and um, that we all have more in us than we really really know. And so for, uh, I've had three rocking careers. Uh, My first career, I was a, a United States swimming coach. So I was working with young people to elevate themselves to their highest potential. And you really don't coach swimming, you coach Mm -hmm. people. It's really about coaching people to break through their fears, obstacles, habits, or doubts. So, um, And I probably would still be coaching swimming except I had no life. So my, <laughs> my next step was to discover some balance in life. And um, I'm probably the only person that you've ever known who went to graduate school to get a life more than a job. Wow. Um, and I did. I went to UCLA and and uh, that's the years that I met my wife. And then I went in my corporate career and uh, had a nice run there, became a vice president first of a a pretty large transportation company in the Pacific Northwest, and then uh, an international training company. And doing that work made me realize that what I believe I'm here for on this earth professionally is to be a speaker and an author. I, I really love these things that I teach. And so for 31 years, I've had the joy of speaking all around the world, um, speaking about leadership, team building, thriving on change, breaking through fears, obstacles. Um, I've been called America's Breakthrough Coach because I had the fun of speaking to close to a million people. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I can't wait to do the next one. And, it, mm-hmm. and and that's saying a lot because in the last, you know, a little over a year, live events have sort of disappeared. Yeah. Um, and so I had to learn to adjust and and do things virtually. But through that entire flow of those three careers that, you know, the real connector is it's all about trying to bring out the best in people, both individually and collectively. So that's what my books are about. That's what my speaking's about. That's what I'm about.
0: Mm, that's so, amazing. <laughs> Brian, we are obsessed. And I, I love that you said just like teaching people on leadership and breaking through fear and just challenges. And I know we're going to focus on your book, ROI of Kindness, but before we kind of get into that, um and I recently read Beyond Success. And mm-hmm. I think it'd be so cool if you wouldn't mind sharing the story of your swimmer uh, that you share in that book. Is her name Abby?
2: An Allison.
1: Allison. Allison.
0: Okay. Nope. It was an A name, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that would just be so cool just... That story literally when we read it, we We were both crying. We both sobbed. We (laughs) were so good. (laughs) You just have a way with words of of writing it in that book. And it was just such a powerful story. I'd love if you would share it.
2: Well, I would love to. It's a 45-minute story, so I hope this is a really long show. So I won't (laughs) won't do the 45-minute version, but (laughs) Okay. Okay. It's a story from my first career as a U.S. swimming coach, and I, I had coached uh, a young lady by the name of Allison, and she was she had this incredible red hair, and she was a wonderful, wonderful uh, young lady, um, but she always seemed to die at the ends of her races, and she was a butterfly. Now, butterfly is the dolphin stroke. It's undulating, it's got great rhythm. And for eight straight years, I coached her backwards. At at the ends of her races, she would tie up and she would move from the front of the pack to the back of the pack. And every time she'd get out of that pool exhausted, beaten down, I'd be such a ridiculous coach. And I'd say to her, you know, one of these days, Allison, you're not going to die. Now, that is about as dumb a coaching as you can do because (laughs) – If I say to you, don't think of the number three, don't think of the name Evie, don't think of the name Lindsay, boom, what pops in? Evie, Lindsay, three. So um, the same thing kept happening to her over and over again. Well, the big deal in age group swimming is like life. It's to move up. It's to move to a higher level in your career so you can you can provide for your family better. You can have a big, make a bigger difference. In swimming, you're trying to qualify for higher and higher levels of competition. And the big one that kids shot for on an individual uh, age group level was called the Junior Olympics. Well, Allison never made the Junior Olympics. She got close and then she'd go into a higher age group and have to start up a bigger mountain. Well, the last summer that I coached, she finally made it. She made it in one event. If you were fast enough, you could swim seven. It was the 100-meter butterfly, which is up and back in a 50-meter pool, and she made it at exactly the time standard. In other words, one one-hundredth of a second slower, she'd have missed it, wow. but she made it exactly, and I thought, oh, thank you. No, no, no child deserves their dream more than this child. Well, to try to make this story a little bit shorter, when she was warming up that day, um, she had quick speed. Right, But she looked so incredible that morning warming up. Um, And I had her do an all-out 25-meter sprint. And she was whipping down that pool. Her hips were flying. She was looking incredible because she had quick speed. The challenge was she died at the ends of her races. Mm -hmm. But when she finished that warm-up sprint, I got a breakthrough idea. And I looked at her and I said, Allison, how do you feel? She goes, Coach, I feel great. I said, Allison, you look awesome. And when I said that, her hair actually got redder. (laughs) Anyways, I said, you look awesome. And I got an idea. And she said, what is it, coach? I said, well, when you swim the 100-meter butterfly, I'm going to be standing right where we are right now. I was right in the middle of the pool. So I'll be standing when you have only half a lap to go. And she gets kind of curious. She goes, okay. I said, Allison, when you breathe at 75 meters and in butterfly, you breathe with your chin out of the water, you can hear really well, especially she's going to be in the outside lane, lane eight. I said, I'm going to yell the word now. And she goes, great. And then she goes, what does that mean, coach? <laughs> <laughs> Allison, when you hear the word now, it's 75 meters. I want you to envision and pretend that you just dove in the pool and are swimming the same warm-up sprint you did just now when you did that awesome sprint. Remember how awesome you felt, how high on the water? She looks at me. She goes, yeah. I go, mm. go warm up. So anyways, I ended up getting all of my team all right, I, instead of doing what I normally did, which was to send all of my kids to the end of the pool to cheer their teammates on when they got to the turn, I only sent half to the end of the pool and half behind me at 75 meters. And I said to them, listen, when Allison gets to 75 meters, she takes a breath. I'm going to say, I'm, I want to bring my f- hand down and you'll now so loud, water flies out of the pool, the bleachers break and we <laughs> in a good finish. Can you do it? And, I, and these kids are so excited. Yeah, we can do it. I got to tell you the truth. I was hoping and praying she could improve maybe maybe four or five tenths of a second because I knew the swim of her life had been the swim that got her into the Junior Olympics only a month before. And that was to hit the time standard of 117.99. Well, she dives in the pool, finally in the Junior Olympics. all right, At the end of the pool are her teammates cheering their lungs out for her and they were her heroes. They were the kids that for... Eight years, she had dreamed of just getting on their team and they were cheering for her. And Mm -hmm. something started to stir inside of her. And she rose up into that turn, these kids at the end of the pool cheering on, going bonkers. She whips down that back, uh, she comes out of that turn. All 50 of those kids at the end of the pool were so excited. They got the same idea as one and they ran around the corner of the pool to join the other 50 kids I had behind me at 75 meters. So all of a sudden, I have 100 kids <laughs> squeezed behind me. And Allison comes to 80 meters, 77 meters, 75 meters. I go, now. Nah. I put my, my arm down. The kids yell, now, nah, so loud. I'm pretty sure water flew out of the pool and the bleach <laughs> bleeped a little bit. And then something happened that changed the way I see. You see, 75 meters for Allison was the same line that every one of us is going to face in our life maybe today. It's the same line that every one of our kids are gonna face in their life maybe today, that we're gonna face in our career, in our health, in our aspirations. 75 meters for Allison was the line between fear, which had always won, and freedom, between failure and absolute faith. And it wasn't until that 75 meter mark that morning with that little girl that I finally realized that I more than anyone had been teaching Allison to fear and Hallison to fail because of the way I saw her at that 75 meter mark. You see, I was just waiting for her to fall apart like usual. I'm hoping she wouldn't be as bad as usual. But when she heard that now from those hundred crazy kids, something that's in all, in all of us shook free. And she started climbing up on that top of that pool. She started chewing up that water. She looked kind of like Miss Budweiser the hydroplane whipping down (laughs) some lake with eight strokes to go, which is incredibly difficult in a 100-meter butterfly because it takes so much oxygen. This little tiny girl with this massive heart took one last breath, refused to breathe, head down driving, bam, 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 bam. She hits the wall. She looks down the other seven lanes, there's nobody there. No. She, she told me later she thought they'd already finished and got out. <laughs> oh my God. I looked at my watch. See, I had hoped and prayed that with everything perfect, Allison could go 117.5. And believe me, I knew my kids, they were my life. Well, I thought I did. Allison had gone 105.9. Oh
1: my God. She'd improved
2: more than 12 seconds. And here's the most incredible part of all. All right. She came back that night and she swam and went even faster in the finals. And what I realized how was that every person I ever coached, every person that listens to your show, every person that you've ever known has an Allison factor inside of them. And we need to focus on their possibilities instead of their limits, because that kind of breakthrough is available to all of us.
0: Well, (laughs) that was... more, <laughs> I cried more hearing you say that than reading you say are we're, we're both over <laughs> here crying, <laughs> like well, tears. Down our cheeks, I mean, like i I'd
1: love you
2: because I cried opening as a supermarket. So, you know, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> oh so.
0: my gosh. Oh. Brian, that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I just, I wanted to open the show with that because it, it hit me so yeah. hard when I read it. And I know it hit Evie too. Just yeah. like the, the power of what you said of, People, every single one of us having that Allison factor, every single one of us having that potential, and and then flipping that to you as a leader or you as a coach. Like every single yeah. one of us has people in our lives that we are in leadership position over, whether that's our kids or whether that's even our just our peers or people that we work with. Like we have the ability to encourage and elicit that type of, of power out of people just by how we treat them and how we interact with them and, and the things that we say and, and even how we view them. And so I just, wow, that, Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> you know, it's you. so
2: easy It's so easy for us to coach backwards. I mean, I cared about her very much, but for eight years, I did the same thing over and over again expect expected a different result. I'd say to her to try to inspire her, hey, Allison, one of these days, you're not going to die. Yeah, and just one yeah. time of shifting instead of what we don't want to what we do want, hey, finish your race like you just did that awesome sprint. Remember how it felt, how high on the water? transformation occurred. So, you know, the next time that your eight-year-old is singing and they sa- they sound good to themselves, they sound like they should be <laughs> winning on the voice. And you say to them, what's that terrible racket? You may take away their voice yeah. and you don't need to do it. You can focus on the joy that's coming out of them. You can focus on, on the, the even if there's 19 notes that are wrong and one that's right, focus on the one that's right because yeah. either way, what you focus on is what you create.
1: Oh, uh, that is... So powerful and so true as, you know, human beings where I think our natural tendency is to look towards our failures, the negative around us, you know, if if we're in conversation with 10 people or whatever over the course of a week and nine of them say incredibly nice things to us. And one of them says something really hurtful or degrading or demeaning. That's the one thing that sits with us. And so it's so easy for us to focus on, you know, oh, I always die at the end of my races. That's always going to be my story. You know, that's always the case, but having people who call out the truth and the potential in us and help us push past, you know, that that 75 meter mark, like that, that boundary where we almost always like give in to that fear or the norm or what we believe. That's just a game changer.
2: You know, yeah. it's, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm called America's Breakthrough Coach because I've had about three quarters of a million people actually break wooden boards in my seminars, in my speaking. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a metaphor of breaking through fears, obstacles, habits, or doubts. I, and here's the most powerful truth. Um, you don't know you can do it until you do it. And yeah. when you do it, it's all about your focus. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter your coordination. I've had people break boards, Evie and Lindsay, that you would say no possible way. Mm-hmm. I've had a 95-year-old 4-foot-10-inch woman in front of 4,000 people <laughs> who had tried three times in a row to break her board, had not done it, I right, come up on the stage all right. And she, when she broke through that board in Atlanta, you could hear it out there where you are in Ventura. All right? it <laughs> wow. was that incredible? Um, but the key is not your strength or coordination. It's where you focus. Yeah. If you focus yeah. on the board, you get more of the board. If you focus beyond the board, you focus on the breakthrough, you get the breakthrough. And that's mm-hmm. the way it is in life. That's why it's so crucial to take, to take the choice of recognizing that what I focus on is what I create. So let's focus on what we want to create.
1: Mm, That's so freaking good. Oh, I feel like there's there's so much we could dive into with that, but I also feel like there's an aspect of your story with Allison that I kind of want to touch on a little bit, which was your ability to speak so much life into her through your your heart for her and for all of your you know your athletes and your students, of you view them with so much love. And you believe in them so fully. Do you feel like, as a coach and as a leader, that's one of the biggest, you know, a- attributes that challenges and pushes people to truly grow?
2: I truly do. There's a, there's a principle that um, I studied psychology when in, when I was in, in college at Stanford, and there's a principle that's called the Pygmalion effect. And the Allison story is really about the Pygmalion effect. And it says that our thoughts and our beliefs and our expectations are magnetic. In other words, as we think about people, we're not only seeing it, we're actually pulling them like a magnet in the direction of our thoughts, beliefs, and expectations, whether they're positive or they're negative. And, and here's here's how it was proven. A researcher by the name of Robert Rosenthal went into, went into 25 elementary schools, and he went to the teachers, and only the teachers in these first grade classrooms, and told the teachers that he had developed a test for first graders that would identify for those teachers something we'd all like to know if, if we're running a business when we're hiring people. We'd like to know about the people we're working with. It would identify which of the students were what he called spurters. And a spurter was a child with great potential, but who had not really used it yet. So he administered the test, about 500 kids, 25 different schools, all right, gathered up the tests. A week later, he came back to those 25 teachers and he told them the results and said, Lindsay is a spurter, Evie's a spurter. But guess what? It was a big fake.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He had never graded anything. What he had done was to, had administered a very basic first grade intelligence test and then gathered the papers and burned them, never looked at them. <laughs> so totally at random, he had told the teachers which of the students were spurters. Well, I bet you can guess what happened. Over 97% of the students that were randomly selected to be spurters, spurted. They rose to the top of their class and they stayed there academically over a course of years. Why? Who changed? The teachers. Yeah. See, the teachers didn't look at Evie the same way anymore. They Mm -hmm. saw something different. They saw a spurter. It was a classic... A beautiful, powerful pr- proof of the Pygmalion effect, but he got sued for the uh, for the study, and the people what? who sued him were the parents of the other kids, oh. um, because the teachers taught them as if they weren't spurters. Wow! So well, the point is that as we look at people, as we look at our children, as we look at the people on our teams, I right, We need to recognize that our thoughts, beliefs, and expectations are being communicated far more through our body language and tonality than even through our words. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's why it is so important to believe in them more than you believe in yourself. I bet, I bet both of you have had people in your life who, at certain key moments, believed in you more than you were believing in yourself. Yeah. And that impact of their Pygmalion influence lifted you and helped you break through your fears and obstacles. So uh, I do have a tremendous faith in people, but I also learned from Allison and, and it made me recognize how many Allison's had I, had I, had I missed, how many yeah. times had I, had I been coaching backwards, and it made me aware to be more alert for the possibility inside. See, she always had the quick speed, but all I saw was her ending at the, was her dying at the ends of the races, and that yeah. was what I was communicating to her. That one shift in my view transformed her. I, I can give you one more really powerful little story about that.
1: Yes, please um, do.
2: I talked about how I have people breaking boards in my seminars. Well, uh, many years ago, I was doing, not that many, probably about six or seven years ago, I was doing a smaller program up in Canada. And I had a young man in my group who was about 25 years old, who was paraplegic. He had been in an auto accident at 21. He was in a wheelchair. His, his, um, His spine had been severed. But he wanted to break his board. Now his 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 hands were also curled up, and he had not, you know, had very limited movement. And up until that point, I had been holding boards and having people break boards for more than twenty years. And every so often, I would have somebody not break through. I and I always thought, well, it's because you know they had a physical limitation or you know something going on with them. But when I looked in this young man's eyes in this wheelchair, I saw how much he wanted to try to break the board. He had not even straightened his arm out since the accident.
1: Wow. Um, four years. Wow. And there
2: was such a light in his eyes and such a joy in his eyes and such a belief that I had an epiphany as I had sat down on my knees to hold the board for him. And the epiphany was maybe all those people who didn't break with me before, it wasn't them. It was mm-hmm. me. It was my doubt. It was my lack of complete belief in them. And with him, as I looked in his eyes, even though he was probably the least likely person you could ever have to break a board, I believed in him. Mm -hmm. And his father was standing behind him in the group. There was 40 people who had paid a lot of money to be in this particular program. And um, I was just a guest presenter at this program. And with all 40 people in the group cheering him on, cheering him on, this, this young man who had not straightened his hand, much less moved his arm in that time, opened his fingers and his hand flew through the board.
1: Wow. And
2: his father burst into tears, fell on the ground. And since that day, I have never had a single person who I've held the board for who wanted to break through, not break through. And that mm. made me understand that it was my lack of belief, my doubt, not their, not their inability, not their shortcoming, not their fear. It was my fear that 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 I I, w- I didn't believe in them enough. So that's how powerful our Pygmalion effect is.
0: Mm, man, well, oh. and I think that's just like it just goes to show, like the opinions that we have of people's perception of us or even just like feeling the energy around us from other people and what they're thinking and what they believe, like that matters. And just putting that back on us, how we interact with others in our life. Like as a parent, I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh, like just like how I treat my daughter and the things that I say and even think about her affect her so much.
2: Absolutely. I mean, most people, uh, many people have what I call, an, they think they have what they call an energy vampire in their life. All right. And that is somebody, you don't even have to talk to them. You know, they're going to put you down. You know, they're going to, you know, take your dreams and step on them a little bit. And I've had people over the years come up to me and say, you know, I have all this energy except when I get around him. Mm-hmm. Right? And as soon as I get around him, I know I'm going to lose it. I'm going I'm to fall down. I'm going to feel small. I'm going to feel I'm not good enough. And I always say the same thing to those people when they come to me. What do I do about my energy vampire? And I say, and I don't say what I'm about to say to you to be cruel or harsh. I say it to set them free I say, if you have someone in your life who you think sucks the energy out of you, stop it. Mm-hmm. It's not their energy. No one can take your energy away unless you give them permission. Mm-hmm. All right? And so it goes both ways. As a parent, we want we want to be very conscious. Of not taking, not not focusing on their on their shortcomings, not focusing on you know one of these days you're going to die, not focusing on what's that terrible racket, and to, and really be aware that we have an influence in the direction that they are going to believe in themselves. But we also have a choice if we're on the other side as quote unquote the victim to stop being the victim. Mm-hmm. And I learned this the most important way you could because the guy I thought was my energy vampire. Um, apps is one of my dearest friends in the world today. And it's my dad. Um, Mm -hmm. And one, one time of no longer allowing myself to take, to give up my energy to him, to think that he was taking away. I realized how much I love him. I realized how much he taught me. I realized that he had always told me he loved me in the only way he could, which wasn't with words, which was by doing. And so on both sides of that coin, if you're feeling that there's somebody that takes your energy away, that puts you down, the only way they can do that is if you give them permission. And you don't do that out of anger. You don't take it back out of anger. You do it out of joy. They're doing the best they can. And as a parent on the other side or as a leader, recognize that your thoughts, beliefs, and expectations can really move somebody forward.
1: Mm, That's so powerful. And do you feel like kind of, I would love to, Start talking maybe a little bit about your book, The ROI of Kindness, because I feel like the two almost go hand in hand. I'm assuming that you'll agree with that. So, do you want to talk to us about your motivations in writing your new book, The ROI of Kindness? Is it very much tied to your influence as a leader um, in believing in your people and in approaching it with kindness, you know, all of that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a a foundation of everything that I teach in the ROI of kindness and beyond success and all my speaking is that everyone is a leader. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone, we're all CEOs of our own life. In other words, how we show up every day, that's a big part of our leadership. How do we deal with How do we deal with adversity, with challenge, with change, with uncertainty as we've all dealt with through the pandemic? That's a part of our leadership. Probably most important of all, what kind of impact do we have on the people around us? Do we lift them up with that Pygmalion spirit? So we're all leaders. But I wanted to really, I have never felt a stronger pull in my lifetime. And I've been around a long time (laughs) to, to see a rebirth, a refreshing a whole new revolution of kindness in our world. I've never, in the over the last five years especially, I've seen more um, name calling, more separation, um, and many people think that leadership and business uh, is about being tough. It's about that that kindness. Everybody wants kindness in their lives. We want to be kind, and we want to be treated with kindness. But there is a powerful a powerful conditioned belief in business that has come out more in the last five years than I've ever seen it, that being kind is weak, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't work in business, that you got, it's dog eat dog. And so part of the inspiration to write the ROI of kindness with return on investment of kindness is to prove how incredibly wrong that old conditioned belief is. Mm -hmm. And that truly kindness works. Not only does it make you feel good to be kind, not only does it it, uh, lift your own spirit but it absolutely works all the way to the bottom line. So, I, a part of this was on a community and a national and even an international basis. The impetus, the inspiration to write this book is to say, "Hey, we can disagree without being disagreeable." Yeah. You know what? We can get more done by being kind than we than we ever will by being by name calling, by by narcissism, by some of those things that are the antithesis of kindness.
0: Yeah. Yes, oh, I love that. Well, and I think. Especially in the business world, it, just everything that you you think of, you think of the slimy car salesman that's trying to like what up you and get a, <laughs> and a get a quick deal, or even just like the tough macho business CEO that's like trying to screw people over. Like that's usually what you think of with the connotation of like big tech or just like big CEO companies and 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 all of that. And I love that the spirit of this book and just uh, of what you teach is. The complete opposite of, of that kindness and just treating people well. And I know in the book you talk about the KVP, which is the kindness value proposition. Could you talk about that concept and some examples of how the KVP has ignited great results in just anything that you've seen?
2: Absolutely. I think one of the most striking a KVP is a kindness value proposition. And the way, the best way I can define it simply is it is a it is a vision statement focused on bringing kindness into your culture. All right. So in in a business, businesses are, really depend upon their culture. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And at the foundation of a culture is this idea of a kindness value proposition so that every, once you've created one, It will transform your team. It'll transform your decisions. It will transform your relationship with your clients and customers. And so I'll give you probably one of the most striking examples. And there's all kinds of research in the book that points out examples of how this KVP is so transformational to help you become the best in your business. Um, well, an industry that we all probably know a great deal about because we've used it an awful lot is called the fast food industry, also called quick service foods. All right. And the quick service food industry, the average annual turnover. So how many how, how often you have to replace people in your company is one hundred and seventy percent a year. That means, you know, at a normal and the average average um, quick service restaurant, they have to replace their employees two times, almost two times a year. There are two companies in that industry who really understand and have built in KVPs, kindness value propositions. And they're just simple statements. All right. And one of them is a pleasure to serve. All right. And those two companies are Chick-fil-A and Starbucks. All right. And they, by having that kindness value proposition at the core of who they are, every training every orientation every new uh, new team member they bring in everything they acknowledge and re- and recognize and and show gratitude for surrounds that action about giving kindness uh, by finding pleasure in service service is love and action well again the industry average is 170% a year these two companies in the same industry their average turnover because they built their culture around a kvp at Chick-fil-A, it is 14% per year. At Starbucks, it's 24% per year. Wow. When you add in the fact that that every time you have to replace and retrain and rehire a new employee, it costs around $6,000 in that industry. That is a massive amount of dollars to the bottom line. Yeah. And that yeah. is not even measuring the impact of of the better of the the elevation in customer service yeah. in the way that or, or that customers feel. So the KVP does a remarkable thing. It centers everyone on the opportunity um, that comes from really being uh, really bringing kindness into every interaction, into every interaction you have with clients and customers, but also every interaction you have with each other. And another example of an industry, of an organization that has dominated their industry based upon a KVP is Southwest Airlines. Yeah. Southwest Airlines, um, they bring in the concept of combining fun and kindness. That's what their, their KVP is based upon. Well, in their average turnover is less than 3% in an industry that's over 30%. Wow. Um, they had 46 years in a row of profitability in an industry that, where the price of fuel alone can make a huge impact, and they had zero layoffs in their entire history. All right, wow. not to mention that they're rated the top in their industry. So the KVP as a foundational cultural vision has a transformational effect. Whether you're talking about a giant company or a little company, and everything in between, when you focus on kindness, you start to generate incredible word of mouth, you start to generate incredible customer loyalty, and you begin to generate incredible teamwork, because unless that kindness is to one another, as well as to your customers, it really won't work.
1: Wow. Photographers, listen up. Do you struggle with editing in Lightroom? Are you confused as heck about organizing catalogs, backing up your images? Culling takes you actual ages, and editing as a whole just leaves you feeling discouraged and frustrated and maybe bored too. If that is you, consider us Santa on Christmas morning because we have a completely free Lightroom challenge for you that walks you through everything we just mentioned, including a bunch of tricks and hacks that make editing in Lightroom a million times easier and faster.
0: The challenge includes five videos, roughly 30 to 50 minutes each of Evie and I tackling some of the trickiest topics on editing and teaching you exactly how we use Lightroom to edit drool-worthy photos. We cover our favorite tools within Lightroom that will change your editing game, and we teach you how we import Cole, upload, backup, and catalog our photos in a way that is efficient, fast, and reliable. You don't want to miss this challenge, my friend. And if your editing needs a refresh and you just want to know how we edit our photos, this is the place to be. Sign up and join the challenge at theheartuniversity.com forward slash challenge. One more time, that's theheartuniversity.com forward slash challenge. And we can't wait to see you there. Do you feel like every time you send an email to an inquiring client, there's crickets? You're never getting clients to respond back to you and you're just sitting there like, what the heck am I doing wrong? Well, my friend, we're about to solve your problem full free. Did you know that the most important part of the very first email you send an inquiry is your pricing guide? (gasps) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Yes, and your pricing guide
1: should be an avalanche of professional excellence, details, problem solving, and information for your ideal client. They should walk away from that pricing guide asking where the heck has this person been in my whole life? Now, if your pricing guide isn't leaving your clients in awe, then you need to change it. Now, we are about to help you do just that with our free guide, seven essentials to include in your pricing guide. If you are ready to level up and prove your value to your clients, you need this. Head to theheartuniversity.com forward slash guide dash freebie to snag it theheartuniversity.com forward slash guide dash freebie. Okay. So can you talk to us a little bit about almost like establishing a KVP within your company? Because this clearly anyone who's listening to this is going to be like, yes, I need this. I want this. You know, whether it's an entrepreneur who has, uh, one contracted employee or, you know, just wants to start a big company someday, or even wants to, you know, implement like a KVP in their daily life around their friends, their family, like whatever that looks like. Can you walk us through maybe a little bit of the first steps to establishing a KVP?
2: Absolutely. I can give you a a firsthand experience. Um, the, the, The key thing to the KVP is it needs to be simple and short, So never more than 10 words. And the reason is, unless it's owned by every single team member, it has no value. And so uh, I believe enormously in the KISS principle, keep it simple, superstar. And so uh, an example, when I was the VP of uh, and VP general manager of that large international training company, um, I learned this stuff a really fun way. Um, I, we were in the industry of helping people believe in themselves. We were in the industry of personal growth, all right? And yet we did not have that, that KVP, that centering cultural view a vision statement to build upon. So having had no experience with this, what I started to do as the leader was, I thought, oh, okay, I'll write something and we'll just work on it. And so I wrote what I thought was a brilliant KVP. It was like a paragraph long. I'm talking a long paragraph long, <laughs> all right? And I brought it, but I did one smart thing. And this is what's crucial if you're doing this with your team. I, I brought it to my team. I didn't just, you know, say, dictate it. And yeah. I said, hey, look what I wrote. Isn't it really good? Um, they didn't keep one word of what I wrote, all right? Wow. We ended up having a KVP that said, we are champions of empowerment. That was our KVP. Wow. But my little writing of it gave us at least some momentum to get an idea of kind of what we were working for. And through that process, that was over 30 years ago that we wrote that KVP. We are champions of empowerment. And I can promise you, everyone on our team can, can recite it as easily as I do. Everyone on our team will tell you that from the moment that we put it in, so keep it simple, less than 10 words, complete engagement in your team so that everyone feels a part of it. Uh, that transformed our organization. We got more done after that KVP was installed over the next six months than we had in the previous three years because we knew where we were going and we knew how we were going to get there.
0: Would you almost say that it's almost like similar to a core mission statement, but but simpler?
2: I would say simpler and, and focusing very much on the, on, on, in some form of including kindness. Over yeah. the last five years, um, they, they've measured, there's been measurements of what is the single fastest growing determinant of customer loyalty and mm-hmm. 391% growth in terms of kindness and that's because wow. what we talked about before. Because we have never seen such name calling, such separation, such, yeah. such um, creating somebody who doesn't dis- who disagrees with you and, and turning them into something somebody evil. That has mm-hmm. never been a part of my life. We've been able to disagree without being disagreeable. And so people are hungry for kindness. People want to be treated with kindness and want to deliver kindness. So involve engage that concept of kindness whether it be the word warmth, whether it be kindness itself, into that short short vision mission statement of 10 words or less.
0: I love that. Well, and okay, having your team's buy-in and creating that, are there practical steps that you can utilize to have each team member then bring that concept alive in everything that they're doing for the company?
2: Absolutely. And and that's where um, I I had so much fun writing the book about that. You may not end up being the CEO of your company, even though you are the CEO of your own life. You may Mm -hmm. not be the COO. You may not be the CIO or the EIEIO, but (laughs) you can definitely, definitely right now, this moment move into the corner suite because you can be the CKO. And that is the chief kindness officer. Uh, And that just requires a choice and an understanding of what I call the seven habits of highly effective CKOs. Thank you, Stephen Covey. I borrowed from you. (laughs) Um, uh, And the CKO is the chief kindness officer. Again, just as we talked about the KVP, the crucial ingredient is engagement that the entire team feels ownership of that kindness value proposition. Similarly, then, then the question is, how do I do that? Because the, the the kindness value proposition is on a macro level. That's on a culture level. That's the whole team. Yeah. But each individual needs to feel a part of that and feel that they can they can really bring that that kindness value proposition to life. And that's where stepping up and saying, I have a new title. I may be the receptionist. I may be um, the custodian. I may be um, a customer service agent. I may be whatever. Title you have, but my main job is I'm the Cko. I'm the Chief Kindness Officer, and I deliver kindness through these seven habits that I work on every single day because they bring our kindness value proposition to life.
1: Oh, okay. I'm so intrigued. Can you walk us through maybe like a couple of those habits?
2: Absolutely. I, I'm, and uh, you know, I, I can I can name them all if you want, but we'll just talk about a couple of them. Perfect. Okay. Um, one is, is called blame busting. Um, if I was to pick the single most destructive word in the language of teams and business, the word is the word B-L-A-M-E, blame. Blame mm-hmm. kills teams. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a reason why blame serves no purpose in, a, in an organization or in a team and why it destroys kindness. And it really is a very practical reason. If you think about blame in the context of time, is blame about the past, the present, or the future? It's oh. always about the past. Yeah. So whenever you find yourself in blame, whenever you're blaming someone, where are you? You're in the yeah. past. Yeah. Can you do anything? Can you do anything constructive in the past? No. So a blame buster delivers kindness in a very simple way. Um, they don't pretend that we don't mess up. We all mess up. All right. But what they do is they take it from blame from destruction to construction. And they do so yes. by saying, here's what happened. What are we going to do now? And the reason why blame is so destructive and the the absolute antithesis of kindness is that as soon as people start to feel blamed, they start to feel like that, you know, that old fair game called whack-a-mole?
0: You know where <laughs> your, yep.
2: your head comes up? So you stick your neck out and you, make an, you take a little risk and you bring up an idea, you try something. All right. When, when there's blame in an organization, you feel like I'm not doing that. Cause when I stick my head out, I get whacked. Yeah. All right. But when you have blame busters who are saying we no longer will go there because we believe in people's people's real motivations are positive. I right? do they all work out? Does every idea work out? Does every action work out? No, but does everyone give us a chance to learn more? Absolutely. Yes. But only when we deliver the kindness of blame busting. So there's one for you. Um, Another one of the seven habits that really I I think is is really important one, um, and it's it, it is one that takes takes becoming aware at a new level as a leader, right? And that is to ask more than tell. Mm. Um, we've been conditioned that you go to a leader for answers, mm. and there's certainly a time for that. But if you want to be someone who really builds people, if you want to build an organization that has a culture of kindness and, and, and authenticity and act and in active, active motion forward, then you've got to recondition yourself to ask more than tell. And the reason is whenever you ask someone how they think, whenever you ask someone for their inputs or their feedbacks, how do they feel right away? They feel valued, yeah. they feel like respected, Yeah. right? So it's an incredibly powerful way to deliver kindness by making them feel like, hey, I'm important, I matter. They yeah. really believe, they value what I think, Yeah. right? And not only that, when we ask more than tell, we give people a chance to think for themselves. Yes. And that's the only way that they can grow. And finally, by asking more than tell, we ignite their energy because the quality of our team will be determined by the quality of the questions we ask each other. So when we ask more than tell, if our goal is to build people, teams, and relationships, it's vital, it's vital to deliver kindness in the form of asking more than tell. I'll give you a great example. When I was a coach, my last year, my team had become the largest, one of the largest teams in America. I had 15 assistant coaches. Wow. A year after I left coaching, I was in graduate school. And I was in a class where we had to write a weekly paper about our our previous work experience. And I asked a tough question. I asked myself, if I was such a good coach, what happened to my my 15 assistant coaches one year after I left coaching? And whoa, it was like a bucket of ice water on my head because 14 out of 15 were floundering.
1: Oh, yikes.
2: Only one was thriving. And he was the one that I asked instead of told. Wow! If he came to me and said, Brian, I got this problem. What do you think I should do? I would turn it into a question. I'd say, I don't know, Jay, what do you think you should do? And Mm -hmm. he'd say it and I'd say, well, sounds good to me. A year out of coaching, this guy was thriving at a whole new level. And it it was because I asked more than tell. I allowed him and engaged him and encouraged him to think for himself. That's what we Mm -hmm. do when we ask more than tell. And that is a powerful form of kindness.
0: Wow. I love that. I think I just what I'm hearing from you, Brian, is just the more further uh, confirmation that as leaders, we need to position ourselves in a servanthood mindset and build up the people that we are leading over. So whether that's employees or or students or or what have you, just continuously, like just the the common theme throughout this entire conversation that I've that I've been thinking of is just like. Empowering like the way that you empowered Allison, the way that you speak with kindness to your people and the way that you build them up versus what we typically think as leaders of domineering or speaking down to or telling. Just like I, I'm just reminded of like the Bible, honestly, and Jesus, like the way that he even led people and he he was a servant. And just like that's such a good concept as leaders to remember is leading from a place of service versus leading from a place of just power
2: almost. That's beautiful. Our job is to empower, not overpower. Yeah. And, and when you get down to it, I really believe here is our job. And remember, we're all leaders. So whether mm-hmm. your leadership is as a mom, whether your leadership is as a friend, um, whether your leadership is has nothing to do with uh, a hierarchy, it's just yeah. that you're constantly teaching others yes. um, through your actions, through the way you deal with life. Our job comes down to one thing. Our job is to help the people that we lead, serve, and love Mm. to know they're important, Mm. to know they matter, to know they're significant. Because when people feel important, they rise into an oh yeah spirit. Yeah. And when people feel unimportant, they fall into an oh no spirit. Yeah. And so the ultimate key to kindness is to help people know that they're significant and important. Yeah. Um. You know, when it's all said and done, you know, I've thought about this because um, uh, not all that long ago, one of my, um, my wife's um, in-laws passed away and, mm. and at the funeral service, I just walked around and I talked to people and every single person that I talked to about this woman who had just passed away, described her with one word. She was kind. Wow. And I thought that is a life well lived. She's yeah. touched every person in this room with through the simple act of kindness. And in so doing, she made others feel important. Um, mm-hmm. My mentor who wrote the forward to my first book that you mentioned beyond success was the greatest college basketball coach in history. Mm-hmm. His name was John Wooden. Um, and John Wooden, for those who don't know, was a, was a legend. His, yeah. his team's won 10 national championships. No other coach in men's college history has won more than five. But John Wooden was the kindest man I ever met. Mm-hmm. And he proved to me that kindness works. And he exemplified perhaps the most important key to being a chief kindness officer. And that to me, it's the, if there's one thing that I hope everyone will get more than anything else from my book, from my writing, from my speaking, it is the ultimate secret behind the secrets. And that is to be fully present. Wow. Now, when you're fully present, that means 100% of your mind, body, and spirit is with the person you're with where they are now. Um, now, how many of us have ever been with somebody where we know their body's present, <laughs> but the rest of them is definitely in another county? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all have, but yeah. here's a key question. How does it make you feel
1: yeah. when
2: someone you really wish to be fully present with you is not fully present with you? Yeah. How does it make you feel when somebody you really want to connect with is obviously more interested in looking at their Facebook on yeah. their cell phone than they are connecting with you? For yeah. some people, it makes them angry. Yeah. For some, it just makes them sad. Yeah. But for everyone I've ever known, whenever we want, we have somebody we want to be fully present with us and they're not, it makes us feel worth less. Yes. Yeah. It makes us feel insignificant and unimportant. Yeah. But when we are present, we deliver a message so much more powerfully. Please, everyone, learn this the easy way. I, The greatest gift I've ever been given was given to me by two of my greatest teachers, my daughters, Kelsey and Jenna, when they were eight and three. And when they were eight and three, I was so caught up in my career, right, that um, every no, every Every, every morning I would go into my office in my house. I had moved, we had moved from the big city to a little town. So I would be a more, more fully present dad. See, I was on the road 22 to 25 days a month, all mm-hmm. right? Because I was out speaking, I was doing consulting, all right? So we had moved so that when I was home, I'd be home. I'd be there to get them ready for school. I'd be there after school to help them with their homework. We'd have dinners together. I'd be there to tuck them in at night. That's why we moved, but have you ever known what to do, but not done what you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was me. And so every morning I would go into my office at 4.40 in the morning because I was dealing with all these different time zones. You know this from when you lived in Hawaii. Right? Yeah. And so um, next thing I know, I'd missed t- miss getting him ready for school. The same thing would happen after school. Right, Those family dinners, they were three-quarter family dinners because I'd be on the phone. And those days, we weren't doing email. We weren't doing uh, uh, social media. Everything was on the phone. I was on the actual phone. But I was going to be present. Well, one night when I should have been, could have been tucking them in, reading them a story, cuddling with them, telling them how beautiful they are, being present. Instead, I was where I always was. I was reaching for my phone, my two daughters, Right. I felt them behind me as I was reaching from my phone and I turned and I looked and there they were and they ran to me. And Jenna was three and she crawled up in my lap and she kind of got her head under my hand, kind of like a you know a golden retriever saying, pet me, pet me. <laughs> right. And they looked at me all right, and they changed my life. And they looked at me with their innocent and authentic eyes and they said, daddy, before we go to sleep, can we just ask you something? And I said, girls, you can ask me anything. And they grabbed my heart and they shook it. And they changed my whole vision and direction in life. And they said, daddy, we just want to know, do you love your phone more than you love us? (gasps) Well, I felt the blade go in deep.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: Emerson said, what you do scream so loudly, I can't hear a word you're saying. Wow. And I was living my life as if my phone was, a more, was more important, a higher priority than my children. Well, I will tell you girls, I tucked them in that night. And I never <laughs> missed another night when I was home. Wow! The next morning, I was the one who made breakfast. I was the one who got them to school. And my wife was the happiest person on the planet because <laughs> she can't stand early morning. And I never missed another morning when I was home. That day... I came back from dropping in school and I changed my calendar. And from that day forward, I would never do more than seven events a month. I didn't care what you pay me. I wouldn't do it. Wow. Yeah. And so I was home like 14 days, 16 days, 18 days a month. I And I thought I was doing it for them. Here's the best part. You don't get less done being present in your work. You get more done.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and you send a message to every person when you're fully present that they matter, that they count, that they're important.
0: Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, you started this interview off, uh, making us cry (laughs) and now you're ending it making us cry. (laughs) um, Literally, I guess this, the last question that we usually always ask people, which I feel like I'm so eager to hear your answer because this entire interview has been just like such a, a beautiful lesson in life. But the question that we usually always ask is what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in business and life? Um, which is kind of a hefty question, but I have a feeling you might have a good answer for
2: it. Well, I think I just gave it. The, yeah, it, it, I know most, I, that's
0: what <laughs> the
2: greatest lesson in life that I ever learned, and I I should have learned it so much earlier. Um, was that if there's one thing that matters in life to our relationships, that matters as a leader, that matters as a parent, more than anything else, it's to be fully present. Yeah. And that being fully present is a choice that we can make every day. And you can start small, inch yeah. by inch. Anything's a cinch. So, everyone listening to your wonderful show, pick out one person in your life who, for the next thirty days, you commit to be more fully present with. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to spend more time with them. You may actually have less time. But when you're with them, put the cell phone away.
1: Yeah. When you're at
2: home, shut off the television. Ask more than tell. Yeah. Listen yeah. before you formulate your response. And you watch after just a couple of days of being more fully present with that one person, they're going to look at you different. They're going to go, you've been working out. You are looking good. (laughs) But if there's one thing that matters in life, the most important gift you can give anyone that matters to you is to be fully present.
1: Mm. Well, I uh, will just be crying throughout the rest of today, just thinking about (laughs) this interview. There's just so much power and so much... Truth in your words, Brian, and I hope you know how, like, how deeply powerful they are, and how much they they pierce and cut through the noise around us, our walls, our barriers, our pride, um, and impact, and and hit deep in a way that I think is planting so many seeds, so many roots, and out of that, so much fruit in each and every one of our lives. So, thank you so much for. Being here today for cutting deep with the, the beauty, the power, the truth of your words, of, of kindness, believing in people, and, and how to be a, a servant leader that's actually going to change the lives around you.
2: Well, thank you. You both are exemplify so many of the things in the ROI of kindness and beyond success. You can hear it in your voice, your energy and your enthusiasm, um, your your insight. And I think the reason why some of these things resonate so much with you is because we know these things. Yeah, we just yeah. need to get back to them. We yeah, need to yeah. get back to what's important. We need to get back um, to move from ego to we go. Yeah. Um, and when we do uh-huh. that, we can we can really make a difference not in just our, our own our own life, but every life that we touch. My favorite movie of all time is It's a Wonderful Life because yeah. it talks about how we, one kindness doesn't stop with that one person you were kind to. It starts with that person
1: yeah. and it keeps
2: going and going and we'll never know how far that ripple effect can move.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, Brian, That's for amazing. everyone <laughs> who is just obsessed with you as we are and ready to learn more from you, read your books, hear you speak, like any opportunity to learn from you can you just plug yourself right now and just tell everyone where they can find you?
2: Well sure um, the the best way to, to get in touch with me and I promise I will always reply if you reach out to me uh, you can do so uh, is through my through my website and it's just brianbyro.com. so wwwbrRIan bir It's got my books there. It's got a little store. It talks about my speaking and it gives you an opportunity to send me like a personal email. I will always get back to you. Um, my email will always say, Brian Biro, husband, father, grandfather, speaker, author, because I always want to keep <laughs> my priorities right. But yeah, my website is kind of the go there and it's all there
0: place. Amazing. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. We so deeply appreciate it. And this interview has just been literally a highlight of our day. And I'm (laughs) sure when people are listening to this, the highlight of theirs.
2: Well, thank you so much. I can't (laughs) believe it was an hour. We just seemed like we just got started. I
0: know.
1: know. (laughs) Could go forever.
2: (laughs) Thank you both so much. You really are. um, I've done a lot of of podcasts, but I I think I enjoyed yours maybe more than any.
1: Oh, Oh, thank you. I'm going to cry again. (laughs) You're amazing, Brian. Thank you so, so much.